My name is Christopher Lytle. Everyone calls me Topher. Uh, just a little bit about me, not that you asked, but I'm going to tell you anyway, so what do you think of that? Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. Didn't become a Christian until I was 18, and then I think six months after that, I decided what a good idea was, was to move away from everything I knew to Joplin, Missouri to go to Bible college, which was the single biggest culture shock I've ever had in my entire life to go from L.A. to Joplin, Missouri. Um, I've been in ministry about 20-plus years. Um, I've been a part of ministries in New Orleans, Los Angeles, Missouri, Nashville, and now my family and I. We've rooted ourselves here in the Richmond area, and we absolutely love it. So that's me, and the rest of this morning, I'm just going to listen to you guys. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. That'd be an interesting Sunday. Um, I don't know about you. When you think of good things in your life, most people's minds don't go to middle school. Um, middle school is one of those times that it's just awkward and uncomfortable for every person I've ever met. Like when someone tells me like, man, middle school was the best. I'm like, you're a liar. Like you're just, you're, you're either a unicorn or you're lying. Like I don't understand that at all. Right? Like middle school is where you start to discover who you think that you are and you're figuring out what it means to make friends and all that kind of stuff. And you get embarrassed really, really easily. And you just, you're navigating that life and figuring out who you're going to be. I was always a dramatic kid. Um, I, I just am. I'm kind of drama. I'm extra. That's, 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 who, that's who I am. So I immediately took to football because I'm a big guy, and I took to theater. Those were my two things, which oftentimes don't mix together. And I'll never forget, in my eighth grade year, I got cast as the lead in a play. And during our opening performance about midway through, I blanked completely on my line. And I panicked. I froze. And then I ran off the stage because I thought that was the best idea at that moment. And my director, my drama teacher, was on the, on the wings, and she's going, what are you doing? Get back out there. They don't know that you made a mistake unless you show them that you made a mistake. You've definitely showed them. Now get back out there. Here's the line. And so I go out there, and I'm trying to be self-effacing and try and get things back on track. And we get the play going. We finish the play. Everyone's talking about when Chris decided to screw up the entire thing. And the next day... My drama teacher has a cast discussion, and she goes, I want to talk about Chris real quick as I'm sitting right there. <laughs> this is fun. Don't do what he did. <laughs> and she goes, the best piece of advice I could give you is that when you make a mistake, just cover it up and move on, because when you're performing, no one's going to know you made a mistake unless you show them that you've made a mistake. And so that's like if you're an orchestra person, if you're a musician, if you're a performer in any way, they teach you this it's because the audience has no idea what they're actually supposed to be seeing, right? And so you learn pretty quickly, like, okay, so even if I can't remember the line, I'll just make stuff up as I go until I find where I'm supposed to be. The problem with that is... I think the majority of us have really become proficient masters at hiding who we really are. And it doesn't matter if you were in orchestra or drama or you played a sport or some kind of performance. We've all learned over time that the best way to navigate this life is to put up a certain amount of walls and to let people see us the way that we want them to see us so that we can better navigate everything. And it's become so innate in us, it's become so habitual in us that we don't even recognize that we've become really good at lying to ourselves. 
that we become really good at covering up all kinds of different things that, quite honestly, we shouldn't cover up. And I know that we all know those people, right, who pride themselves on, like, I'm the realest person you'll ever meet. And if you don't know that person, odds are you are that person. Um, They're the person that's like, you never have to wonder what I'm thinking. Yeah, we know. You tell us. They're the people that have an opinion about everything and they want to share it with you, whether you've asked or not. They're the ones that pride themselves on being real in whatever form that takes. In my experience, the people that put themselves out there that much as being the most real, the most authentic, are usually the ones that are hiding the most. And that's not to throw shade on them. Because the truth is, we all do it. We have all figured out ways to protect ourselves to build walls around our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, so that people never really actually see us. And this infects every aspect of our lives. Most churches, and I, and I want to be gracious when I say this, most churches who are doing what churches should be doing um, are teaching and equipping their people basic spiritual disciplines, right? Reading the Bible, praying, fasting, giving, serving, etc., One of the areas that's often missed and often not talked about amongst thousands of churches that are just loving their people so well and loving their community so well is the spiritual discipline of confession. And confession is one of those things that makes us uncomfortable because we're programmed. When we hear the word confession, it automatically brings up the other word of guilt, right? And so we think we hear the word confession and it's like, uh, what does he know? What, what, am, what, what am I about to find out? We might think of law and order, you know, like dun dun, like we think of the guy getting interrogated until they get the truth out of the situation. Like this idea of confession, though, is something we're all familiar with. Maybe you've come from a Catholic or Anglican background. And when you hear the word confession, especially in a church context, you think of that black box that you go and sit down in where you share with the priest all the things that you've done wrong. Confession is something we typically just don't talk about as often really as we should. And yet confession is seen in every book of the Bible. The practice of confession is seen, Genesis to Revelation. And there's all kinds of different types of confession we see in Scripture. We see the confession of faith, confession of salvation, confession of um, whose you are, meaning like what family you come from, what tribe you come from, confession of sickness, confession of need. But the one that we like to ignore the most is the confession of sin. And so today what we're going to do is we're actually going to have an open mic and we're just going to let you come up. And I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. Can you imagine? I certainly would never, ever be welcome back here again. <laughs> hey, Will, remember that time you asked Topher, that big guy, to come and... And he made us all get on stage and share things that we didn't want to share. I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> Again, it would be really interesting, though. Um, I want you guys to be as comfortable as you can be whilst also being uncomfortable. And so I, I really just want to ask you to sit in this with me for a little bit, um, because I know the idea of confession can kick up all kinds of things for us. Sometimes it kicks up guilt. Sometimes it kicks up shame. Sometimes it kicks up arrogance. And thinking like, I don't have anything to confess. Why are we even talking about this? This isn't something a Christian church talks about. Like it could kick up all kinds of things. And so I, I just, I want you to understand a biblical truth that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament is every one of us are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. 
That's what we see in Old and New Testament. We're not a collection of saints. We are a gathering of sinners. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. I am not better than you. You are not better than me. You're not better than the person sitting next to you. This is a level playing field. And so I just want to ask you to sit in maybe the discomfort with me for a little bit as we talk about confession. Before we get to the confession side of things, we have to define sin real quick. And I think most of us probably have some kind of concept of sin, right? And really we see sin described and, and played out in two different ways throughout Scripture. The first is, is the breaking of God's laws and commands, often referred to as the rebellion against God. Most of us would have that kind of understanding, that kind of knowledge of what sin is. Even if this is your first time to church, contextually, there's enough religions out there that you've heard the concept of sin that you would be able to, to put one and two together. And we often miss that God's laws and commands weren't meant to be tyranny for us. They're meant to be guardrails so that we can experience a just deep, intimate relationship with him in a flourishing life. The problem is, in our broken world and in our humanness, we like to butt up against anything that says we can or can't do something. You may have been a follower of Christ for 60 plus years, and I'm betting there are times in your life that you still will go, I don't want to do that, God. I don't want to do that, because that's our humanness. Anytime someone says what truth is, we want to say, is it really? If someone says you have to do something, we go, why do I have to do it? We like to be in control of our own lives, of our own little worlds, And so we'll oftentimes get so focused on the list of do's and don'ts and the commandments that oftentimes in churches, how it shows up is this. We'll have a person that will say, I'm going to focus all of my attention on these two, three, or four commandments, and I'm going to live these out so well. And as I live these out so well, I'm going to point out how all the people around me aren't living those out very well, even though they're ignoring all these other commandments over here. But they've presented themselves so well in such a way that they feel like it gives them license to stand as judge and jury over the people around them. It's something that we naturally gravitate to. It can show up in all kinds of different ways, but underneath all of that is a deeper reality that we see throughout Scripture, that sin at its core is when we elevate ourselves above God and say that we know better. That is what sin is. Biblically, that is what sin is. And when we can move the conversation from a list of do's and don'ts to understanding the motivation underneath those commands, it helps us move the conversation into a neutral place. Because no longer are we arguing about what commands I follow better than you. Instead, we're able to share in a space that we could all, if we're honest, say, yeah, There's a lot of times that I will elevate myself above God and say that I know better. And maybe you're one of those rare people that you say, I would never say that. Okay, but if we looked at your life, would your life say it? How you act with your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your church, would it say that you elevate yourself above God and act like you know better? 
So that's the space that I want us to sit in this morning, understanding that at its core, sin is when we elevate ourselves above God and say that we know better. And if you don't remember anything from today, I pray that the Holy Spirit impresses upon you this one truth. Honest confession leads to honest change. Honest confession leads to honest change. In 20 plus years of ministry, I can't think of a week that has gone by where I haven't had a conversation with someone whose life wasn't crying out for change. And it shows up in different ways. Maybe it's freedom from uh, an addiction or guilt or shame. Maybe it's that they just want their, their relationship to be better. They want to be better parents They want to understand what it means to follow Christ better. But every one of us has these components of our lives that we wish were a little bit different. Honest confession leads to honest change. Now, the concept of confessing sins is not super difficult to grasp, right? It's like you recognize you've done something wrong. You admit that you've done something wrong. But the reality of the practice of confession is a lot more difficult because when you feel like you have to confess something... Every emotion and thought in the world comes rushing in at you to say, no, don't do it. Because it's self-preservation. Because we've taught ourselves to protect ourselves. I want you to turn to Psalm 32. We're going to start in verse 1. If you have a Bible, if you use a Bible app, I believe we're going to put it on the screen. I believe, probably. I'm new here, forgive me. And there are lots of different uh, particular chapters or verses I could point us to this morning. Isaiah 43, Psalm 103, Hebrews 1 and 7, 1 Timothy 2, all kinds of others. But I thought what would be most helpful for us was to look at a first-person account of confession and kind of how this plays out. So this psalm was written by David, King David, king over all of Israel, little David the shepherd boy who had the slingshot and knocked out the giant, that David. We're going to start with verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now in the Hebrew, this word blessed is a plural word and there really isn't a good English translation for it. Essentially, it would more or less be translated as blessednessness. And although I'm not good at grammar, even I know that's not a real thing. Um, But this is why context matters. When you read scripture, when you do your personal Bible study. Context and the author's intended meaning matter. It's one of the most important things I I can tell people when they read scripture. When you look at the context of David's writings and how this word is used throughout really the nation of Israel and throughout um, the Old Testament, really a better translation of that word blessed is fulfilled. Fulfilled is the one whose transgressions is forgiven. Fulfilled is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The the problem is so often we'll read scripture with our modern eyes in our modern context, right? And if you're on social media at all, you'll know that you've seen hashtag blessed, right? Like we use this idea of blessed nowadays in 21st century America as essentially lucky, that you get to have whatever you want, that you're living your best life now. You get to go on vacation wherever you want. You have the car that you want. Your family is perfect. Your home looks like Joanna Gaines came in and did it herself. Like everything is perfect, That's how we view blessed nowadays in our culture. And so we read this, and oftentimes it's very easy to go, oh, so I'm going to get everything I've ever wanted if I just confess my sins. And that's not what what David is saying. 
What David is saying is that it goes much deeper than getting something that you want, because let's face it, oftentimes the things that we want can change at any given moment. Instead, he's pointing out that we get to experience a fulfillment, meaning that we have purpose and meaning to our life, and that we'll be okay. It may not look the way that we think, but that we'll be okay. And then we get to that last line, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And that's one of those lines that it's very easy to skim over. And in our personal quiet times, if you're reading that, it's easy to, to pass over because you go, ah, people don't really talk like that. I don't want to give it much thought. But I think underneath that, it falls on deaf ears because we really do have an unspoken agreement between us. I will let you see the version of me that I want you to see. And you, in turn, will let me see the version of you that you want me to see. And we both know that we're doing it. And we just allow ourselves to do it because we want to have a semblance of control. We want to feel like we're protected. And so we essentially lie to one another of how we're actually doing, of who we are. And inevitably, we extend that same belief to God. What David is saying is when we lay ourselves bare, truly bare, when we lay our souls before God, something changes within us. There is transformation that happens inside of us when we stop hiding. And look, we all do it. A couple months ago, I was at church. And I was going through a rough time. In the span of three months, I had lost five people that I had cared about. There's a lot of people in a very short amount of time. From cancer, from COVID, from old age. In the process of trying to work through all of the emotions that come with loss, I let my boundaries go. And so I was exhausted because I wasn't resting. I was fighting with my wife and my teenage daughter a lot because I had no semblance of, of any kind of stability of what was going on. I was going to really bad habits of, of just kind of self-protection and like, I'm just going to watch TV or play video games to zone out because I don't want to feel all the feelings. I don't want to deal with all the things going on. And I get to church and I'm setting up for church and one of our elders sees me and he goes, hey, Topher, how are you doing? Great, how are you doing? Isn't that what we do? Our lives can be falling apart whether because of our own decisions or because of things that are happening to us. And instead of just being honest and saying, I, I'm not great, I'm okay, but I could definitely use prayer. Maybe we could get together and talk. We don't do that because that makes the situation uncomfortable. And so we just put another brick in front of us and we say, I'm good. Everything's fine. The habits that we have learned growing up are not ones of truth and transparency and sincerity. It's one of self-protection. Our habit is to guard our hearts so much that we're unwilling to admit that we have struggles, that we are unwilling to admit that we have needs, that we're unwilling to admit when we're wrong 
or when we sin. And David gets this very well. David, the giant killer, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, is writing these words because he has made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and has failed so spectacularly, he has no other option but to come clean. A lot of you know this story. David sees a woman bathing on the rooftop. He lusts after her. He wants her. And so he's king. He gets her. She's married. It doesn't matter. He gets her pregnant. To cover it up, to deal with it, he sends her husband to the front lines of the war so that he will be killed, which he does. One sin after another, one cover-up after another, one thing after another, until pretty soon it snowballs into something so distorted, you don't even know what's real anymore. All of us have experienced that. Isn't that what we teach kids, right? Why you don't lie. Because one lie leads to another lie that leads to another lie, and yet somehow when we get to be adults, we lose that that belief. And we'll justify why we're telling ourselves why we shouldn't have to confess what we're struggling with, why we don't have to come clean with where we have failed our family or our friends or God. We just cover it up. Listen, the things that you keep hidden will always be the things that own you the most. The things that you keep hidden will be your prison. They will shackle you, you will not see light, and you will feel it just as David felt it. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I know you've been there. When you've done something you know you're not supposed to do, when you're struggling through something, and you don't know what to do with it, and you feel the weight in your bones... And you become so tired. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's called conviction. A friend of mine who is not a follower of Christ out in California, we have this conversation all the time. He calls it the Jiminy Cricket. I call it the Holy Spirit. Where you've done something wrong, where you're struggling, and you feel it. You feel the guilt. That's the hand of God on you saying, recognize that you've done something wrong. It doesn't need to define you. It doesn't need to be the end of your story. But you need to be able to own what you've done. You need to be able to own what you're struggling with. We see this time and time again, and then David gets to really the summation. I acknowledged my sin to you. And in the Hebrew, the idea is really this idea of I finally have come clean to you. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't try and hide it anymore. I wasn't trying to live behind all the walls to protect myself and to make sure I looked and my family looked the way that I thought they should look. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David got it. You see through the book of Psalms, which I love. The book of Psalms is one of my favorite books because I'm ADHD, like legitimate ADHD. So I'm all over the place all the time. It's a miracle I've stayed on topic this morning so far. I love the book of Psalms because one moment it's like beautiful poetry. Like, oh Lord, you're just so amazing. The sun rises like the color of an artist's palette. The next one, it's like, I'm taking pot shards to my skin. Why is everything horrible? What have you done to me? Like, it's just like this. What is happening? I'm like, yeah, David, you get me. You get me. Because that's the emotion of life. And some of us have gotten really good at managing the emotions of life. And we screw that smile on our face, and we hold ourselves upright, and we walk through very proper 
acting as if we have no problems, that we've made no mistakes, that there's no issues, and we just keep moving forward as oftentimes we just point out everyone else's issues and how we point out everyone else's problems. I think everyone should be able to relate to these verses because I don't think there's a person in here who isn't hiding something. I don't think there's a person in here who hasn't kept silent on an area of their life and they feel it deep in their bones and they're tired. I don't think there's a person in here who hasn't experienced what it's like to be trapped in a prison of your own making, so desperately wanting freedom, so desperately wanting purpose, so desperately wanting fulfillment, but not knowing how to move forward. Honest confession leads to honest change. We all have something we haven't confessed. We all have something we haven't laid bare. Now, there are two typical ways we see confession play out in Scripture. The first is when we see people grieve their sin. And when people grieve their sin, what we see in Scripture is they feel it. They allow themselves to feel it and wrestle with all the emotions and thoughts that come with their actions. And they don't only feel it, they also own it and take responsibility of the decisions and the choices that they've made. When people grieve their sin, when they feel it, when they take that responsibility, it moves them to a place of repentance. And repentance is one of those churchy words, right? But all repentance means is you are literally turning away from one thing to another thing. You're turning away from what you know is wrong and turning towards what you know is correct. So when you you grieve your sin, when you take the time to actually feel all the feelings of the decisions that you've made, when you own it, when you take responsibility, it naturally leads us to this place of repentance, which draws us closer to God. But there's another side that we see. And unfortunately, this is oftentimes where I think a lot of us find ourselves, and that's when we pity our sin. And I think we pity our sin because either we don't know or we have forgotten a fundamental truth about Christ. So let me remind us of that real quick. Jesus Christ is the son of God who came to die for you and me and we don't deserve it. What's so amazing about grace is that it is so freely offered and we don't deserve it. We forget that Christ died and rose again, conquering death so that we can experience eternity and fulfillment in this moment, in this life, on this earth. And when we forget that fact, when we forget that truth, or we choose to ignore that truth, we pity our sin. And when we pity our sin, the way that looks is that we, we like to show off how bad we feel. And we try and earn back or buy back affection. Think about it. Maybe it's with your spouse or your kids or a buddy from work. And you've sinned against them. And they've called you out on it. And you might feel bad. And you go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You're right. I, I know. You know what? I bought you some flowers. Let me take you to dinner. Let me make it up to you. Let's go to a ball game. Right? We barter. We do that same thing with God. We feel convicted of a sin or a struggle that we have. We don't know what to do with it. And we go, God, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know what? Um, I know I don't tithe regularly. I'm going to tithe this month. Yeah. God doesn't want you to tithe because you feel bad. He wants you to tithe out of obedience. God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I know I sinned. You know what? I'm going to go help in children's ministry. That'll teach me a lesson. You're right. It will. Probably one of patience. <laughs> but God doesn't want you to serve in children's ministry because you feel bad. 
He wants you to serve in children's ministry because kids need adult men and women who love Jesus, who will also love them and show them the way of Jesus. I'm going to go serve the homeless. He doesn't want you to serve the homeless because you feel bad. He wants you to serve the homeless because he says you're supposed to serve the least of these. This is what we do when we pity our sin. We get into these cycles that we repeat. When we grieve our sin and own that sin and move to that place of repentance, we restore our relationship with God and we start to experience freedom and fulfillment. When we pity our sin, we just continue to do the same cycle over and over and over again. We make the same mistakes, we feel bad, and then we try and buy God's affection back. But even more destructive, when we pity our sin is that oftentimes we'll blame others for our sin. And I want to be real careful and clear about this because the truth is, many of us in this room hearing this, many of us watching at home, many of us that will hear this in the future have experienced the very real effects and consequences of someone else's sin on our life. And we are dealing with that and we'll continue to deal with that by the grace of God, maybe through counseling, through friends, through community, and through all the tools available to us. But I don't want anyone to hear me say that that's not a thing, because it is. But that is truly a different sermon for a different day, because that's a whole sermon in and of itself. What I'm saying is, when we pity our sin, if you're not trying to prove your guilt and earn back affection, oftentimes we just blame our actions on someone else. And let me tell you how this shows up. These are true stories, true instances, since I've been in ministry. I had someone come to me and say, hey, I need to talk to you. Um, I got blackout drunk the other night and it was in front of my kids and now they are scared and terrified and I don't know what to do and I feel so bad. But work has been so hard and my boss has been riding me and I have so much going on and I just, I didn't know what else to do. I had a woman come to me to confess infidelity and she said, look, I, I know what I did is wrong, but... We haven't been on the same page in months. And then this guy from the gym gave me attention and he showed up at where I work. What was I supposed to do? A friend of mine in California, whom I love dearly, started to spread rumors about one of the church staff members at the church that he was going to. Because in his mind, that person wasn't speaking out politically enough and wasn't in line politically enough with this individual. And so he began to gossip and spread rumors to the point to where this pastor was getting threats at his house because of the gossip that was being spread. And he said, but, but listen, I know what I did was wrong. It's not great, but he needs to get on the right side of history. He needs to be on my side. He needs to see what I see. In Missouri, the church that I preached at my last year of Bible college, I had to sit two women down and one woman looks at me and she goes, I guess I'm sorry about my anger. I probably shouldn't have yelled at her, but she sat in my seat. <laughs> Anytime someone says, I'm sorry, but they're not owning anything. And maybe you've never been told this in your life. And I'm the first person to tell you this. Maybe I'm not, and it's just a reminder. Your situations, your experiences, and the people in your life are not responsible for how you act or respond. They're not. When you blame other people for your actions, 
When you blame other people for when you elevate yourself above God and say, I know better of what should happen at this church, in my home, in my city, in my country, in this world, and you berate people and you embody all of the things that God lays out that we should not do, the problem is not them, the problem is you. Because you're not owning your sin. You just feel bad about feeling bad. And you're trying to find a way to deal with it. Honest confession leads to honest change. Confession does a few things for us. I know I'm over time. I am getting to the end, I promise. Confession forces us to stop hiding. Um, Every study that has come out recently talks about the loneliness epidemic in Western cultures, especially amongst men, but all ages, it doesn't matter. Loneliness is a very real issue. And I can't help but wonder if the reason so many are lonely is because no one knows who we really are. Because we've never given people the opportunity to see who we really are. When we develop a discipline of confession, and by discipline, I mean this isn't a once a year thing that you do. I mean, this is a discipline, just as reading your Bible and praying and fasting is a discipline, a daily discipline of confession. What that does is you slowly, with the help of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, begin to dismantle the wall that you have built around yourself for a very long time. And it forces you to stop hiding. Confession restores our relationship with God. God's love for you is unchanging. His grace for you is unchanging. But just like in any relationship, when you do something wrong, there's a break in the relationship, right? God hasn't changed. You have. What happens so often is that we will sin. We will do something that we know isn't right in our relationship with God, and we'll feel guilty about it, and we'll feel bad about it, and we won't know what to do with it, and we don't necessarily want to confess it because there might be natural consequences that we don't want to deal with. And so what do we do? We take a step back. And then we, we find ourselves committing a new sin or, or a new mistake and we take another step back and we just keep taking more and more steps back and we get to this place where we go, does God even exist? Why does it feel like God is so far away from me, like he doesn't love me? God hasn't moved, you have. You've run away. Because of your unwillingness to just own and grieve your sin. He's not there to judge you. He's there to love you and to walk you through the process. He wants to be in relationship with you. When we get into that habit of confessing on a regular basis, when we grieve our sin, it leads us to that place where we could finally turn away from those mistakes. When we can move away from the guilt and shame and instead embrace and hide in the one place that we were always designed to rest and hide, God's goodness. And finally, confession moves us forward. You want to be let out of your prison? You want to let the shackles fall? You want to go out into the daylight and have a fulfilled life? Stop hiding. Stop trying to cover up everything that you've been trying to cover up. Begin to build that discipline of confession into your life. And I just want to give us some really practical steps in the overtime that I've already gone over. Because I don't want this just to be head knowledge. I don't want you to feel like I'm talking at you. I want this to feel like I'm in this with you because, again, level playing field. I'm preaching this to myself just as much as I'm preaching it to all of you or those of you that are watching or listening to this in the future. But some real practical steps. The first is this. Get quiet. Oh, no one likes to get quiet. It's uncomfortable. Because when you get quiet, what happens is 
all the things, all the voices, all the thoughts, all the feelings you have kept at bay by distracting yourself with all the various things you've filled your life with come rushing in, and it is terrifying, and it is overwhelming. And what I am asking you to do is get quiet and let that happen. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but what I I would challenge you to do is every day, Find some time to get quiet, to sit with God, listen for God's voice, sit in it and do an honest assessment and dig and find out what you're hiding. It's not going to be comfortable. I, I challenge myself to have at least 20 minutes of silence every day. And when I say silence, I don't mean that's my quiet time when I'm also reading scripture and when I'm praying and when I'm doing all that, just 20 minutes where it's just me silent before God listening. That is, that is my goal for myself. Maybe for you, you start with five minutes a day. Maybe it's 10 minutes. I don't know. But I would challenge you to carve out some time every day to just get quiet. And while you're quiet, make a list. Not on your phone or tablet. Move those things as far away from you as possible. Sure, they might be valuable tools. When you are being quiet in front of God, they are just a distraction. They're just something for you to consume. Grab a pen, grab a journal, piece of paper, a crayon, a leaf. I don't care what you write on or what you write with. Just don't use a tablet or a phone. When you get quiet, listen for what God is saying. Do an honest assessment of what you're hiding and make a list. It might only be one thing. It might be 3,000. I don't know. It doesn't matter. What matters is you're putting yourself in submission to Christ and then finally come clean. Again, God already knows. God already knows what you've done wrong. But when we confess our sin, when we grieve our sin, we are literally surrendering ourselves to come into alignment with what God already knows and sees and believes about us to be able to speak truth and life into us. But there's another part of coming clean. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We can get comfortable with confessing to God. It gets real uncomfortable when we feel like we have to confess to one another, when we come clean to one another. But the reality is, is we're not meant to do this on our own. We're not meant to live this life on our own. We're meant to be in community. That scripture is very clear. And we see this again play out through scripture, this principle play out in scripture. As we grieve our sin, as we confess our sin, as we repent and move to something new, when we then come clean with the people around us, that is when healing actually begins to happen because we're no longer on our own. We have people speaking life into us and praying for us and keeping us accountable and being there with us that when we do fall or trip up, they're there to help pick us up off the ground and help us to keep going forward. Let me be real blunt. When you get to that place where you finally start to confess and come clean to other people, it's scary and it may not go the way you want it to go. Because depending on what you're coming clean for, there may be some natural consequences. You may talk to your your spouse or your kids or your friend or a pastor, and they may tell you, I don't know what to do with this. Or I want to be there for you, but my life is such a mess right now, I don't know how to be there for you. But I'll tell you in the 20 plus years of ministry, what I have seen more times than not when people are willing to grieve their sin and come clean before God and come clean to other people is that you will have people say, I am with you. 
Thank you for trusting me. I will speak life into you. I will pray over you. And I expect you to speak life into me. And I, will, I expect you to pray over me. We can keep each other accountable. We will pick each other up. Because you know what? Me too. Because that's the added benefit of what happens when we come clean. Is that we give permission for the rest of us to finally come clean. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know where you've set yourself up above God, where you think you know better. I don't know what you're hiding. I don't know how long you've been hiding it. What I do know is a very clear biblical principle to get quiet, make a list, come clean, and grieve your sin. And I honestly believe that when you do that, and what I've seen to be true in my own life and in the lives of many other people who do this, and that we could see even throughout church history, is that when you do that, you will see how honest confession really does bring about honest change. We're going to move into a time of communion. And in this time, the reason we take communion is to never forget why Christ came. We remember his broken body and his spilt blood for us, the grace that is so freely offered to us. But what I want to ask you to do in this time of communion, whenever you take that, those emblems, but as the band sings a song, as you're in this time of worship and prayer, I pray that you would begin now to just be silent. Honestly, I come to this place today with great expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to move in your hearts and minds in ways that you weren't expecting. And I trust that in this space, in this time of communion, that you'll start to see pretty clearly and pretty quickly the things that you're hiding the walls that need to come down, the things that you need to grieve, and the things that you need to come clean on. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am so grateful, honestly, for you, for grace. I know that, like Paul, <laughs> I am a sinner and I am chief among them. God, that this is a level playing field, that there is not any one of us in this room who is better than the other. God, I know that Satan and demonic forces that exist in our world and in the unseen world tell us constantly that we need to protect ourselves, that we need to control our environments, that we can't come clean, that there's too many consequences. And so it instills a sense of fear because if, if people know who we really are, then maybe they won't like us. Maybe they'll think we're weak. Maybe, maybe they won't love us. Maybe we won't be accepted. And God, you say otherwise. So God, in this moment of worship in this moment where we remember your death and resurrection, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit be unleashed in our hearts and minds right now to just be honest with where we're at. That you begin to help us identify those things that we've been hiding for so long that we know that we need to confess to you, that we need to grieve so that we can come to a place of repentance, that those areas of struggle, that we won't hide them, but we will be honest so that we can seek help, God, that those people that we need to seek forgiveness from, that we would do so not with blaming somebody else, but taking ownership of our mistakes and our choices. God, I pray more than anything else that you remind us that we are loved, that even in our imperfection, even in the prisons of our own making, you are there calling to set us free. You are there ready to carry us and walk with us and to love us every step of the way. In your own name we pray. Amen.